Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. There's a trend in skateboarding that people are going back to like the basics and like skating just for fun now. Like they're skating just small little curbs and parking lots. A lot of them are are maybe a little bit older. Mm -hmm. They've been pros for a long time. And I find this similar with chefs. Like I feel like as I get older, I kind of just want to go back to what makes me happy. I want to go back and just do nose slides on a little curb you mm -hmm. know, in a parking lot. That is the voice of Johnny Clark co-chef and co-owner of Parachute and Wherewithal Restaurants in Chicago, Illinois. Johnny is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you out there are doing well. Our feature guest this week is Johnny Clark. Johnny is the co-chef and co-owner with his wife and partner, Beverly Kim, of two acclaimed restaurants in Chicago. One has been around for quite some time. That is Parachute Restaurant. The other opened not long before... The pandemic hit, and that restaurant is called Wherewithal. It's about a block and a half away from Parachute. It's a completely different restaurant. It is also the restaurant that is the subject of, or I guess maybe I should say is at the center of my next book, the book that I'm getting ready to deliver, the book that has kept me from posting uh, episodes of this podcast quite as often as I normally do and as I would like because I'm in the home stretch of getting it ready to turn it into my publisher. That book will be out next year. I first got to know Johnny through, again, his wife and business partner, Beverly Kim. As you might remember, Beverly was on the show last year. She came on the show while I was searching for a restaurant that would give me a lot of access in order to write this idea that I had in my book. And to be honest, Johnny and Beverly had not been on my list at that time. Uh, Beverly and I had never spoken. We'd never met. We'd never, I don't even think we followed each other on Instagram. But uh, we had such a great conversation that as soon as the interview was over and I stopped recording, this was again pre-vaccination and it was during uh, still kind of a peak COVID time. This was a, a remote interview, which is unusual for us, but it had become pretty normal during the pandemic. And we connected so much that when I stopped recording, I asked Beverly if she might be interested in 
being considered to have her and her team at the center of the book. That ended up working out. And these people I'd never met before, both Beverly and Johnny and their team. And I should also say some past team members, restaurants being what they are. Uh, two people that are in the book have already pushed off from the restaurant, but meeting all of these people, interviewing them, spending time with them last summer was just an amazing experience. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have found them. And as close as Beverly and I have become, Johnny and I have, I would say, become super close. I'd say we've become friends. You're probably not supposed to say that about the subject of a book you're writing. You're supposed to stay objective, but you know, he is someone who I've spent a lot of downtime at the restaurant, you know, the the, the minutes and hours after service sometimes uh, or during the, the prep day, uh, having just kind of long, deep, very personal conversations. He and I have some things in common that comes up in this interview that we did for the show that you're about to hear. But, uh, you know, Johnny is someone who until very recently has been very happily operating in the shadows. As I say, he and Beverly are co-owners and co-chefs of those two restaurants, but he has never really sought the limelight. He's been a little shy about it. It is something that I'm happy to say he is uh, pushing himself uh, through in, in the last several months, maybe in the last year even. Uh, so I made one last research trip to Chicago uh, last month in April and I brought my podcasting gear and I kind of sprung it on Johnny that I wanted to have him on the show. And I was happy when he responded and said, I'm trying to do more stuff like this. I'd love to come on the show. So we recorded this interview while I was there. Uh, it's, it's a little long. It's, it's over an hour. People who have been listening to the show for a long time know that that is true of some of our best, deepest, most personal conversations. And I would say this is definitely an interview that is in uh, the the mold of, of some of our most beloved episodes. Hooney Kim is one that comes to mind. Um, but I really think you're going to have an experience of feeling like you're just sitting there with two people kind of shooting the breeze. Uh, mostly this is about his life and career and its twists and turns, of which there were many. But it's also about personal struggles, some personal struggles Johnny and I share in common. I, I'm just crazy about this conversation, and I hope you all really enjoy it. I do want to say that I hope you'll listen to the whole thing, which is why I mention its length. But if you don't get to the end, because we really don't talk about Wherewithal Restaurant that much until the very end of the interview. And yes, this is a restaurant that I've come to care about because it is at the center of the book I'm writing. But I will say, if you are in Chicago or if you are visiting Chicago, I would encourage you to check out Wherewithal Restaurant. Uh, it is, as I say, it's in the Avondale neighborhood. It's about a block and a half from Parachute, which has been there for about eight years. And Wherewithal serves a four-course tasting menu. At least that's the way it's advertised. It's an $85 prefix menu. It changes every week. It's quite ambitious, but very accessible. And the four-course description is a little misleading because in addition to that, there's uh, you know, what we now call snacks, what most people used to call amuses. There are a couple of those. There is always a bread and broth course. There is a pre-dessert. The service is very warm, and I would encourage you to visit the restaurant. And if you haven't been there since pre-COVID, I'd encourage you to go back because, as I say, the menu changes every week. I 
because of my research, have eaten my way through, gosh, six or seven of the weekly menus. They're all different. It's always fun. It, there's always something that's kind of exciting without being show-offy. And you'll hear what we mean by that in, in this conversation. Uh, but I did want to put in a mention for Wherewithal because I've just really come to love this restaurant and what they do there. And I should mention, of course, Johnny and Beverly are the co-chefs and co-owners, the chef de cuisine at Wherewithal since the restaurant we reopened, excuse me, is Taylor Ploshahansky. And Taylor has just been doing incredible, incredible stuff with the team at the restaurant. And if you guys are listening, hi, everybody at Wherewithal. I love you guys. Um, okay. Two small notes before we get into this. One is that in the mid-show break, Michelle Vieira of San Pellegrino was going to drop by last week. I started letting you all know about the San Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition. I would encourage if you are under 30 and are a chef or an aspiring chef, I would encourage you to apply for this competition. You'll hear a little bit more about it from Michelle, and there is information on how to do that on the episode description for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. I also want to mention that there are two small bits of background noise that I couldn't mix out of the show. About 10 minutes in, you're going to hear a little bit of a hum. There's a machine that activated. It only lasts for about three minutes, and then it happens once more later in the show. Just couldn't quite mix it out of the audio, but um, when you do notice it kick in, just know that it goes away shortly after it happens. I should also mention that this conversation does briefly include some talk about depression and suicidal thoughts. I would like to share, because of that, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800 273 8255. 800 273 8255. As always, I also want to let you know that our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that as prologue, this is my conversation with Johnny Clark. Here you go. This will have been preceded by an introduction from me, but I, I just thought I'd start this way because I think this can't be true only of me. Uh, you and Beverly are spouses, you're co-chefs, you're business partners. I think for a really long time, Beverly's kind of been like the front woman. Like she's kind of been the one that does, you're smiling as I say this, like <laughs> she did, you know, the reality TV show. She's does a lot of interviews. She's on a lot of panels, you know, the way you, we all first met, you know, your guys publicist, is it, is it Ryan? Ryan? Yep. You know, Ryan reached out and he pitched me Beverly, you know, yeah. it wasn't Beverly and Johnny, Yeah. you know, I knew of your existence because you guys have two restaurants now, but I've known, I had known of Parachute for a long time, but you're still sort of starting to emerge a little bit more. Yeah, and I'm a little just, bit, a little bit. <laughs> can we just, can we just talk about, you know, why it's been that way? Cause I think it's interesting. And I think probably there's a lot of people out there in this age when, you know, it kind of feels like one of the skill sets for a chef or even a cook or a sous chef is supposed to be like the media thing, you know, it's so pervasive. For sure. Um, just why don't you, in your own words, like why has it been that way? 
probably a number of reasons. I mean, I think one of the main reasons is just being uncomfortable, like in being in camera. I mean, you know, being in the kitchen behind the behind the walls, behind the stove all the time. It's I still struggle with talking to guests in the dining room. So just that face to face camera to camera, face to camera kind mm-hmm. of situation is a little intimidating. As I get older, as I grow, as my kids grow, life kind of puts things into perspective perspective itself you know it presents itself to me and I'm just starting to realize that like none of that stuff matters and nobody cares like I I, there's no need you mean about you be like being perfect at it being perfect at it being in front of the camera worried about what people what people think of me those kind of things like that nobody's thinking anything and if they are then they're not worth me worrying about right so if it goes well that's great if it doesn't go well most people probably don't even know it and if they Judge not if they judge it, who cares? Right. I think, I think being 40, I'm 41 and maybe it's just that midlife realization that I have maybe half of my life left. You know, I better start, stop being shy, stop being worried about what people think. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other part of it is just being, I think I spent the first part of my career being really focused on cooking, being the best person, best chef I can be in the kitchen. I think now at this point I'm working on myself, being a better, being a better leader, being a better, sh- being a better chef, being a better uh, mentor to my, my cooks, my chef de cuisine, sous chef, that kind of stuff. And it gives me a little time to focus on myself, being a better person, being a more outgoing person, instead of just being so insular and focused on my own path, mm-hmm. if you will. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, thanks for all that. Yeah. And so far, I mean, you I guess we probably can't say what it is, but you just you were in New York briefly to do a TV thing. You know, we're doing this, you know, you're actively looking for other opportunities. Like how are, are you enjoying it more than you thought you might? Or are you enjoying it less than you thought you might? Is it based, is it I, what you more or less expected? Is it getting easier as you go? What's how you how you feeling about it? That's a good question. I, I I didn't, I don't know what I expected, honestly. But yes, I went to do some TV, but I would think I went into it thinking not much. I think most of it was just nerve stirring. I was worried about what, you know, what I was going to do, what I was going to say, but it's time for me to like start doing these things. I'm, I need to diversify. I think as we all know, the pandemic had a huge shift in restaurants and, and I just decided like I need to diversify myself a little bit beyond just restaurants. I need to personally push my inner being a little further, mm-hmm. you know, be a little bit more brave at, at things. And so being on this show, I think actually before on a scale of one to a hundred, my comfortability level on screen was probably like a 10 and I went up, I probably just doing that, I probably went up to 50. From the experience of From it. the experience, you, you, yeah. You inocul- to put it in COVID terms, yeah. you inoculated <laughs> yourself a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I did, yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, I, and it feels really good, even though it's like something I never considered to be my type of thing. It felt really good to just push myself out of those boundaries that I had formed for myself. You know, like, I'm this kind of chef. I'm not that kind of chef. You know, I, I only do this. It felt good to just break down those walls and barriers that I think a lot of us form on our own, you know, on our own accord, boxing ourselves in. Yeah, because those things harden over time. Exactly. If you don't actively do something to reverse it, yeah. uh, if you decide it's worth reversing, I do feel like those things do harden yeah. over time. And I think, you know, I think there's that that piece of being afraid 
to do those things based on what people think. I think there's a lot of that that goes on in our industry. I, I personally feel like with the 50 best restaurants, you know, the the three Michelin stars. I, I mean, personally, I, I love having one Michelin star. I think it was I, I'm very grateful to have it. But there is a stigma, you know, that like I think the community, the chef community kind of puts on that thing. Like if you're not in the 50 best, you're not michelin starred chef like you're just not as oh sorry you're not as just you're not as serious as johnny only just said he was sorry because i asked him not to touch the table because <laughs> these mics are so sensitive i'm talking with my hands here yeah 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 no everybody does it yeah i mean i don't know maybe but what if you don't have a michelin star or if you're not on the well, list the then seriousness what? of what you do gets questioned like it yeah it gets questioned I, I by think, a certain community by a certain community yeah. but i think what i feel is there's been a um a seismic shift in that way of looking at things recently, maybe over the pandemic, maybe over the past five years. But, you know, when you used to see, I feel like it was only the same five, 10 chefs there. I mean, maybe I'm speaking in the past decade of what you used to see. I I feel like it was just like, if you're not one of these guys or one of their friends, who are you? Do you know what I mean? Maybe this is something I dreamt up on my own. I mean, no, I think it's true. I think it's true. I think it's always been that way to some extent. You know, even if you go back years, like you go back to the 80s and it was always the same 10, 12 people being invited, you know, being interviewed for the big trend pieces and the big national stories. And, you know, Martin Mull, I don't even know if people know that name anymore, but Martin Mull was a comedian. He used to have television shows and he had this great line. That Hollywood was like high school with money. And <laughs> and my version of that about the about the chef community is that it's like high school with a little less money. Right. And and there are the cool kids, you know, and it's always been so, you know. Yeah. And I think people who don't do high technique food, you know, food that's got a huge degree of difficulty technically. Right. They get devalued. You know, people right. who are cooking more traditional food. Yeah. Um, cooking their or mother's cook, recipe. Yeah. That traditionally food. gets devalued for whatever reason. I think women are less interested in showing off as chefs. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, there are, of course, exceptions. Well, and for that reason, I think a lot of women have been devalued because their food scene is less kind of infused with ego. Yeah. They feel less of a need to kind of show off on the plate. The food can be delicious, but I don't, I think it's only, to your point, I think it's only recently that it started to be appreciated. Yeah. I mean, on its own terms. But we, I mean, as chefs, we owe women everything. Traditionally speaking, you know, going way back, I mean, women created all this. You know, they created restaurants. They created cooking in the home. We don't, we don't need to be like that anymore as a society. Um, we're advanced enough that anyone can choose their own path, but we owe women everything when it comes to men's success in, in the restaurant industry. I mean, but somehow we shut them out. I've personally felt this, I don't know how to this word, this, I, I want to say spiritual, but like this, this deep emotional change in myself, you know, like in seeing the differences in, in what's important and what's not anymore. And maybe it's an age thing, maybe it's a maturity thing. I really think that we owe women much more than we give them right now. But I do think now that, you know, all these systems that you just alluded to, they still exist, like the award systems and all that stuff. But I do think in terms of the general public, in terms of food writers, in terms of diners, I do think there is more of a recognition 
of the full spectrum of food. Uh, you know, because I've even stu- – there's ways I used to talk about things, you know, and I stopped, you know, because, like, I used to talk about, you know, the kind of food you get in a quote-unquote fine dining restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about that as kind of, you know, heightened or something like that. You know, and I realized, like, that's creating a strata. You know, when you say that, which everybody did, you're saying that that's superior yeah. to, like, what you might get at some great – just traditional Thai restaurant, you know, yeah. like somebody asked me recently if they, I thought so-and-so was like the best chef in the world, you know? Yeah. And I said, I don't believe that person exists because I said, you know, I live in New York, you know, there's some, I'm sure there's somebody in Queens make cooking Thai food that I've never heard of or ta- and I've never tasted their food. Yeah. And it's probably world-class, you know? Probably. Yeah. Same, you know, same thing you could, you know, and you could say the same about certain cuisines all over this, just the United States, right? Yeah. These are people who run neighborhood restaurants, you know, they're probably from the country or grew up in a family from the country of the food of origin or the food that we're talking about. They're not making money to, they're not hiring publicists, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've said this for years. I'd love to get a look at the, you know, people, the restaurants that, and the chefs that win awards. I'd love to get a list of how many of them even on the nominee list, don't have PR firms. Right. It's probably almost nobody. Yeah. You know, and that's fundamentally problematic. For sure. I'm sorry, it's your interview, but that's kind of a long thing to say. But I mean, I'm glad. This is obviously something I talk about with people like you all the time. I'm I'm glad we're talking about this. I mean, I I think it, it, it seems esoteric to like talk about it in these terms, you know, because we're so used to think like, oh, the amount, the amount of awards that you've win is determines where you are in the scale of chefs, you know, how acclaimed you are. But I tell you, like, I, I think I was mentioning I, I ate when I was in New York um, a couple of days ago, ate at this Ukrainian, like it was run by, I think it's run by a church. Um, I'm sure some people know about it. It's a basement space. It's was a it? basement yeah. space. Like you just walk in, you go downstairs and it's just like folding tables with plastic tablecloths on. And uh, they're just serving. They're serving like um, pirogi or like, you know, little Ukrainian type pierogies, um, some borscht, like soup and nothing to just I mean, on a paper printed menu, you go up to the counter, you order the counters made out of like plywood and you know, some unfinished laminate or something, you know, and it's just funny how like I've people with no hospitality experience can provide a better hospitable experience than someone who's doing it professionally. I don't know. I have, I have those experiences sometimes. Maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's always like that. You never know, but it was a time and place. I was, I was in, you know, I was in the moment I went there and it just felt so good just yeah you texted me about it yeah it yeah was the food the best thing i've ever had probably not but it was the it was the overall just warmth and generosity of the experience i don't know where i'm really going with it no it's okay but but uh, i do think this is a thing you know i've never submitted this show for an award you know it's like five years now i imagine i'd maybe be a contender but at some point i decided i don't need the validation I get that from like the DMs I get from listeners or what people say to me at at live shows or at events or conferences, you know, cooks and, you know, the notes I've gotten. I don't need the validation. And also I don't need the invalidation. Right. Like if I accept the validation of an award, then I have to accept if I don't get nominated or don't win that I'm lesser. 
Yeah. Right? And I've just decided I don't need that. Having said all this, I'm delighted that you guys are up for <laughs> outstanding restaurant for parachute. You know, I think that's, and I'm sure you are too. I mean, I'm, it's a, I'm it's, it's I'm, a I'm lovely ecstatic. thing I'm, to hear from your community. I am, I am extremely appreciative. Um, I think what I think what matters though is I don't think we ever you know set out to to do that. We never do, and it, honestly, it's never in our mind to like win awards or stars or honestly, we're just trying to survive. That's that's all we've ever done. Um, even before the pandemic. even before the pandemic, it was just. It was survival. Mm-hmm. Like we, you know, Beverly and I are both chefs. And at one point I was a stay-at-home dad because she had opportunities. I didn't. Um, so I was staying at home. Um, and, you know, we just did what we had to do. But do, Did what we had to do. But um, there was a point, like, I was like, I don't, I'm never going to cook again. I'm, I'm just not. I spent all this time, spent $50,000 in school thousands of hours in kitchens and I'm going to have to give up on it um, because both of us can't work and have a family and a child at home. And imagine two chefs working at two separate places and you've got a child and it's hard enough together trying to find childcare. Yeah. They're just, they're always, people are always bailing. So one of us had to do it and it opening our own restaurant just was out of despair to be, to be completely honest. It was pure despair. I was, felt at a point, I think we both felt at a point, like we're never going to be really be able to pursue what we want to do in life if we don't open our own restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we were willing to do that by any means, whatever yeah. that so meant. That was your Hail Mary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's talk about how, how you got to that point. Cause I, I think it's really interesting to me, you, maybe as much as anybody I've ever met, you just said you're 41. Mm-hmm. I feel like you are sort of, um, I don't think I've ever said this to you, but to me, you are almost kind of a, uh, personification of the transition that's happened in the American chef world in the last 20 years. You know, you started off, does that make sense when I say that? I think so. I think I get, I see where you're getting at. Yeah. Well, you started off on a very traditional, we're going to talk about it in a second, sure. like CIA, uh, you, you worked at one of the old French New York city restaurants for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then you took a very dramatic turn, you know, and you went to you went and spent time in Korea, and you know you did have this crisis that we'll talk about that you just alluded to, you know. But then in 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 partnership with Beverly, who's of Korean descent, you know, you end up opening a, a fairly, I think, in all senses of the word, progressive restaurant, a restaurant mm-hmm. that was Eastern as well as Western leaning in its mm-hmm. food. You guys are very out there for, I mean, out there, not out there, like weird. I mean, you, you, you put it out there. Uh, you know, you guys use yourselves and your restaurants for a lot of causes. And to me, you know, you've kind of lived in, in the old and the, and the current worlds of like big city American restaurant community, you know, yeah. and some people, you know, you're a white dude. Some people who came, a lot of people who came up in your background, they're still in that world. They're still, you know, they're working for them, you know, the the traditional Michelin starred or or, or French kitchens, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, yeah. they've stayed in that lane. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like you kind of straddle these two eras. That's what I mean by what I said. Yeah. I mean, Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think to be to be honest, it was always a struggle for me to, I had to push myself to be in that kind of world. Right. I never wanted to be, 
be in it. Never it, felt right. It never felt right. I, I think I think on the surface, I felt like I needed to be in it. That's why I did it. I don't know if that's necessarily true for anyone that they need to do that. It never felt comfortable. The way being in school never felt comfortable to me. I did it because it was required of me almost. You know, it was, I mean, school obviously is required, but um, I was never a school person, never wanted to be there, never thought I fit in there, but I did it. Yeah. And it's just, same thing goes with the beginning of my career. It's like I, yeah, I took some some of the traditional path, but it was a struggle to do it. Yeah. It was. So let's talk a little bit. Yeah. I'll have said this in the intro because I'm writing about you. I could like really go deep on any one of these periods in your life. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you, you were born in Cincinnati. Yep. Um, so you're a you're a Midwestern person mm-hmm. uh, by birth and you're back, you've been back here for a long time. Just, you know, briefly tell us a little bit about what kind of, like what kind of kid you were. So Cincinnati is like, you know, it's a Midwestern city, but it's also a stone throw across the rivers, Kentucky. So it's like, it's a very interesting place. Looking back on it, you know, I'm, I'm glad I grew up there. It's made, it made me who I, who I am. You've got people that sound like they're from the middle of Kentucky, people that sound like they're from New York, people that sound like they're with no accent. And then you've got people with the traditional Cincinnati accent that say things like spaghetti and, and you know, and like mm-hmm. uh, trying to think what else they say, uh, please, you know, and for, for excuse me, please. There's just like this mishmash of culture and cool stuff and really weird stuff that I grew up with. Um, so that was kind of like growing up in Cincinnati, but I grew up in a entrepreneur entrepreneurial household. Both my parents uh, were entrepreneurs. My mom owned a hair salon my whole my whole life. She, t- she still does. Uh, my dad held various jobs as like a package uh, design, package production design. That's like was his first job. He started when he was 16 or something like that and never got out of that business. And mm-hmm. he had his, his own business multiple times, but it was a field that kind of changed all the time. So when it would, when there would be a big seismic change, he would have to go back and work for someone and he would try to open his own business again. I grew up in that, an entrepreneurial household that I I think made it uncomfortable for me to ever really work for someone. It was hard because I saw how my life was and it was hard to see myself any different. And maybe that's, you know, digging deeper. Maybe that's part of the like perfectionism or like it's got to be all or nothing or the ADHD component. I don't know, you know, all the Mm -hmm. things that I have in your book, I'm sure you, 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 pick up on a lot of that, but, um, I don't know what it was that made me who I am, but I'm sure it's an accumulation of all those things. Yeah, sure. And it's been really hard to like, not get away from that, those experiences. That's who I am. If that yeah, makes sense. Sure. So you were an avid skateboarder. Avid skateboarder. As a kid. You're still interested in that world a little bit. I, I st- yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll ever not be interested. I still stay up late watching skateboard videos in my bed on YouTube or, you know, Instagram or something mm-hmm. like that. Thrasher.com. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that was a huge influence on my uh, career and, and my work ethic, I think. Um, people don't realize, like the I, like I mentioned, I never feel like I, I, I never fit in in school. I had some friends growing up, but it was never like a real friend, you know, mm-hmm. people I don't keep in touch with. But I, it always felt like I didn't fit in. I was, a, I was a, kind of a fat kid growing up. And that also had a big imprint on my life being that like teased and picked on and stuff. Um, but w- it all changed in like around my seventh, eighth grade year when I picked up skateboarding. 
And if you've never skateboarded, you don't, you won't understand how much it leaves an imprint on you. Like the amount of times you fall and get up and keep trying the artistic drive that it gives you, um, always trying to learn something new and progress when you're a skater, like you don't learning one trick, it's not enough. You got to keep going. Like it, it just, you don't feel fulfilled if you're not always learning new tricks and learning new things. And the amount, like the, the kind of, um, joy and pride and self um, respect that it gives you is is really something unparalleled with any other sport hobby that I've ever done. So I have a question that actually had not occurred to me in all the months I've been thinking and talking to you and, and writing about you. But, you know, you weren't happy in school. Mm-hmm. You didn't like school. You felt socially awkward. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of distrust amongst kids. Like I didn't really like kids that much, but they this picked is, on me. But know? as you know, the, generally speaking, all that stuff is very common amongst people who go on to become cooks. Yeah, I, right. I think it's so. very common. Uh, you mentioned not seeing yourself in a traditional office. That's very common. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people then you find get to the kitchen, and that feels, for whatever reason, like where you, you feel like you this is where I belong. Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk about you had this early job and that worked out well for you. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering, is do you see some anything analogous between like the skateboard community that you discovered and a kitchen? Like, is, think, is, is there a similarity just in the vibe and the, and the people it attracts? I mean, I, I absolutely. I, I really do think so. I'd, I'd really like to see a, a survey of how many chefs used to skateboard growing up. Are you aware that two people on your, not right now, because some people have pushed off since the, the day I'm writing about in the mm-hmm. book. Are you aware that there's, there were, when I was here last summer, two of your team were former skateboarders? Yeah. I, you were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, one of it's still, one of them is still here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of right? amazing. Well, it's because, I mean, well, when I say the team, I'm talking like last summer, you guys were just coming out of, you know, the, the being shut for COVID. I mean, the team was like five or six people. Yeah. Half, if counting you that's like half the people yeah were were people who had skateboarded just kids yeah i mean i the parallels are actually i mean if you think about it but all all the things you just listed like yeah getting good at something repetitive motions like perseverance like these are all things that's required of someone who wants to get good at cooking right i mean i think i think skateboarding set me up for that i mean i think it came to a point where i knew i wasn't going to be a professional skateboarder. I knew I, I never progressed to where I felt like that was going to be an option. It's incredible that people can do that. I mean, it, the way that the sport keeps progressing, I'm like, God, it's like what people are doing today. It's like acrobatic. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. I, I see the same in food. Like I, you think about the way food is progressing. You're like, that is really incredible like yeah it's a whole new world yeah even at the like the the trends in skateboarding you kind of see there's a trend in skateboarding that people are going back to like the basics and like skating just for fun now like they're they're skating just small little curbs and parking lots just to have just to have fun doing it a lot of them are are maybe a little bit older you know like Mm -hmm. they've been pros for a long time and i find this similar with chefs like i feel like as i get older i kind of just want to go back to what makes me happy you know i want to go back and just do no slides on a little curb 
you know, mm-hmm. in a parking lot. I have to just say my appreciation for skateboarding, just the basic craft or technique of skateboarding. My son, when maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, decided he wanted to learn how to skateboard and we got him lessons and all that. I had never, because um, I was a total geek as a kid, I'd never stepped on a skateboard. <laughs> and anyone out there who has not literally just stepped on a skateboard has no idea what is required just to even, I mean, those, I mean, the wheels, they're so, um, loose. There's, you know, it's such a fat, it's just, you're, you're immediately have no control and, and it's even hard to just stand and keep the board still. I mean, it is so reactive and sensitive. Yeah. It, It looks like you just get on and start going. And ultimately if you get good, that is true, but it's not like you could just hop on and push yourself across a park. I mean, yeah. you won't make it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to fall. Yeah. For sure. Within two seconds. And I mean, it, the same goes for people that think they can just be a chef, right? I mean, you, we, we see this all the time, yeah. you know, career changers or whatever. Sometimes there is, there is your fluke, you know. Yeah. There are freaks of nature who just were born to it. Same thing yeah. with skateboarding. Right. There's people that can jump on and they just, they're just already good. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens. But the reality of that happening for most people it's it's very rare. Yep. Um, and we see that like people give up their jobs, you know, like I want to own a restaurant, you know, and and then they they get on like, what did I just do? You know, like I just fell and broke my elbow. All the power to them. I, I really appreciate people going for it like that, too. I don't I don't put them down, but it's a wake up call. Right. You're like if you get on a skateboard, you got to know you're going to fall. Don't be naive to think you're not going to fall. All right. So you get a high school job. Again, I'm just going to do this a little so we don't run out of time. No, keep going. Yeah, yeah. But you get a high school job and what you described to me as a like a Jimmy Buffett-ish place, uh, you -hmm. know, kind of Key West themed place in high school. You go from kind of helping out front of the house-ish to, um, you know, finding your way into the kitchen as people do. And then, and, you know, in your, and I think, correct, it was your dad who actually suggested maybe, you know, you should go to culinary school. Yeah. I mean, he also, yeah, he suggested I get a job at this. He had like Jimmy Buffett themed restaurant called the Pelican's Reef. Yeah. Started dishwashing and bussing tables and it was kind of like combo roll. And yeah, I kind of learned to get in the cooking there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, yeah, I think my dad did recommend that I look into cooking. He was pushing me to figure out what I wanted to do before high school was over. It was ninth grade. I was, wasn't driving yet. It was 15. Yeah, I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe I owe a lot of it to him, you know, getting me start pushing me in a direction, mm-hmm. but um, it was the right direction. So you go to the CIA and we don't have to spend too much time on this, but again, you were there like, and I think of it as like the pre-enlightenment days. You were there when the, you know, instructors would still get in your face. And as one chef used to say to me, like scream at you with like a lot of weather coming out of their mouth. Right. (laughs) For sure. Like, right. You, you experienced all that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they were, I mean, I remember being sent home a few times because I missed a a spot shaving. I wake up, you know, we're, we're kids or we're, we're drinking, we're, partying we're right, trying so you to wake get, up hungover and you do wake a mediocre up hungover job and shaving. i'm just shaving as fast as i can to get to to get this school on time and i miss a spot and sure enough they i mean they're i feel like though they had eyes on you they were looking at everything are your socks white are you have the right do you have the uniform pants on 
do you have, you know, like checkered pants? They were they were a specific mm-hmm. checkered pants. Sure. They had you probably to had to wear a, a neckerchief. Neckerchief yep. is your neckerchief clean? Yep. You know, is it got a yellow stain on it? For the most part, I I think I abided by the rules as much as I can, but I sure hated it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like the being being sent home for I hate shaving. I mean, as you can see right now. Yeah, you got quite the beard going. <laughs> uh, I'm envious of it, actually. If I could, I would have a beard <laughs> like yours. When you're done with school, you go to work for, I don't know how many people will know this name. O- older listeners will know this name, but it's, and if anyone read my, I'm not trying to plug it, but if anyone read my last book, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, this restaurant's really important in that book. You went to work for a guy named uh, Jean-Jacques Rachou mm-hmm. at La Cote Basque. And just to contextualize, and then I'd love to hear about, because it's an amazing thing. You had the the rapport you had with this guy. But Rashu was like, back in the days when it was really hard for an American cook to get into a French kitchen, he was one of the first chefs in New York who w- was willing to hire Americans and really loved American kids. and And people who've gone on to be sort of, you know, uh, legend status, American chefs, people like Charlie Palmer and Rick Moonen, um, Frank Crispo, who's maybe not as well known, Todd English. Um, all these people worked for Rashu back in the day. Uh, uh, Daniel Ballou actually kind of stodged there. The, you know, that was his first ever New York city kitchen experience. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of history in that kitchen when it was around, you were there kind of when it was already sort of a, a little bit of approaching like relic status, like it was not, didn't have much more time to be around, yeah. um, early 2000s. <laughs> but why don't you tell us, what was your experience of the restaurant and of, of Rashu? Yeah, man, I think I, I think I went there because out of all the things in, you know, school, high school, history was about the only thing that I enjoyed. So I've always enjoyed history in and outside of learning environments, um, I love knowing the history of food, uh, where things come from. So naturally, I think I was just drawn to Le Cote Basque for that reason, just knowing how many chefs had passed through there. Yeah, it was fun to to work there. And, and Rashu, Jean Jack, as a lot of New Yorkers would call him. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, but Jean-Jacques Rashu, he... Or Jax. Yeah, he, he was a great guy. I mean, he was he was super intense and he was inspiring. Um, it's the first time I've seen a, a chef. I mean, I don't think a lot of people know this or if they cooks or chefs still know about him, but he was like a real estate mogul as well. I mean, he got into New York in the 60s yeah. and he was a successful chef. I think I know he, I know he worked his way up, but when he did get in and he bought it, he bought uh, Le Cote Basque from uh, some other chefs. I, I honestly can't remember. Maybe you remember. Wasn't it owned by uh, Henri Soulet, who also had Pavillon? I think it, I think that's right. I think right. that was his like kind of satellite second lesser known yeah. place. Yeah. So he he purchased that from him, but he also that, that's I guess that's when restaurants were really profitable. You know, at a, there was a time when being a chef and owner was a really profitable thing, and and New York was actually also affordable back then. So. He um he bought a bunch of real estate and um uh he had he told me he had apartments in in uh, France and Paris and uh the south of France and Nice. Um well, he was kinda yeah, he's kind of like the opposite of the old broken down, sometimes drunk, yeah, French 
chef who just like left it all in the field and then one day wakes up and they're kind of over the hill with no money in the bank and they can't really work anymore because right. they're kind of broken physically. He planned for his future. He was a businessman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, he's- and he, I mean, yeah, New York was more affordable then, but I think he was just a different animal. Yeah. I mean, he, I didn't know this before starting, but he really inspired me to be where I am today. Just knowing that it's possible for a chef to like, like we own our two buildings here in our, both of our restaurants. Like we went, we went a solo route. We got bank loans, you know, to, to own our own businesses. And thank God Chicago is, it's still possible to do that here. But, um, I, that inspired me to, I I kept that in my mind, uh, you know, after I left there, even that like, I want to be like this. I want to have my own place. I want to be able to come in. He would eat dinner every night at the restaurant. Just, it was like an extension of his home. You could tell he lived down the street. He, He had, his apartment was just a few doors down and the restaurant was just an extension of his home. And I, I felt like that's what I want with my restaurant. Like, and that's how it is. They're both, these are both just wings of my house. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, this is. We'll talk about this when we get to certainly wherewithal, because this is part of your philosophy of hospitality. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not just that, but I mean, what you just said, yes, but also that's how you want people to feel. Yeah, exactly. In your restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're you're in New York. Then we don't need to get into it. You have some other jobs you weren't all that crazy about. Yeah. And then uh, tell us about how you got to Korea and who you worked for there, because this is another. I, I think. You know, it's interesting to me. You know, I feel like in some ways it feels like luck to me, but in some ways it feels like it can't be. But you have put yourself in a number of a couple, at least two places, actually more than that, three. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. talk about um, Le Chateaubriand in a little bit, but like a number of places that had, you know, right, right person, right style of cooking, right model of management right time, you know, that really kind of helped shape you in a lot of ways. But talk, let's talk, tell yeah. me, about, tell us about Korea. Being in New York, I, you know, I, I, we were talking about this just the other day, you and I, um, just, I think it's kind of the reason why I left New York. I was just like, God, I'm spending so much of my life sitting in the subway, trying to get home. And I just got kind of burned out, you know, like sitting in there, it could be three hours sometimes, like at night after getting out at one in the morning or this is about 20 years ago when you were in yeah. Queens, yeah, exactly. which is one, the, one of the lesser known outer boroughs. Yeah. I mean, people I'm sure know Queens is part of New York City. But yeah, it's across a river and it's not yeah. as populous or popular or as well served, to be frank, as Brooklyn is now. Yeah. And this was 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, so I just like, I need to do something new. I want to do something new. I don't know what. Just yearning for something fresh in my life, you know, um, a new experience, a new, a new lease on life, a new look on life, something. And, and this is kind of, and I don't know if this is by coincidence. I think it's my personality. I've always been drawn to people that are not of the mainstream. Um, like in, in culinary school, all my friends, they were all from Puerto Rico. Like, you know, it's it really interesting. I, maybe that was by chance, but I was still drawn to that group of people. And then it turned out like when I was working at a restaurant in New York that a lot of my friends beca- were Korean. That somehow they had gotten to um, New York through various types of visas, probably like a J one working visa after mm-hmm. culinary school or something. And I just attached on, you know, attached to some Korean friends. And I don't know. I think it just inspired me to. I had I had remembered seeing uh, 
chef Im Ji-ho, who I worked for in Korea, which I'm getting to, but saw him on the cover of Food Arts magazine. And a lot of, maybe if a lot of your listeners remember, older listeners like myself, um, <laughs> might remember that. Right, remember it's all that. relative, Johnny. <laughs> right, remember that magazine cover where he's, it almost looks like a rooster's hat. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a rubber cap. It's a, it, it's a, it's a cloth cap. It's like oh, a it's chef's cloth? hat, but he oh. had it like custom made to like resemble a rooster. Yeah, um, like the coxcomb. Yeah. It looks like, yeah, it has those points. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, if you saw it, you can't forget it. Yep. And so I just, I had that image in my, my mind and I remember flipping through that magazine and I'm at this point where I want to get out, do something new. And I just asked my friend, Nicole, um, who's still in New York, um, but if she would call, uh, this chef and ask if I could do a stage and she did. And when she got back to me about it, she was like, yeah, so I called I called Chef Yim Ji Ho, told him you want to do a stage. And he said, what's a stage? <laughs> and so I was like, and so she had to explain to him what that was. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I've had some, some foreigners ask me that if they wanted to do that before, like when I've done some demos at the CIA. He's like, I've never really thought of doing this, but I feel okay. I feel good about this one. He's like, I never accepted it before, but for some reason I feel good about this one. I'll tell him to come. And so I was like, wow, wow, this is my opportunity to, to go. Like, get out of here. Do something life-changing. Okay, um, I've got to interrupt you for one second. You end up married to a Korean-American. You end up, and, and part of your kind of courtship or whatever you want to call it, was kind of founded in some ways on what you learned over in Korea. Yeah. This is a guy who never... And, you know, you have these two restaurants your whole life, right? In some ways, had you not had that job, probably your life wouldn't be what your life is right now. I don't know. Right. It wouldn't be. It would, right? In all kinds of ways. This guy had never said yes to anyone before. You didn't, it's not like you had an interview with him. Your friend made a phone call. Yeah. And he said yes. So here's my question. Do you believe there's something else at play in life? Like, do you believe there's such a thing as like destiny? Your whole life's different if that, if he didn't say yes to that. Who knows what your life would be right now? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Do you ever think I mean, about that? I think that- Or do you just feel like, oh, that was lucky? <laughs> no, I don't I don't believe in luck and I don't know if I believe in fate. I think this this is all, it's the cosmos, if you will. These are, these are it's energy that lines up and I don't think- So when that, you say the cosmos, you don't mean like the randomness of the universe. You mean something I mean, opposite it's the, of that. It's the, it's the, right, right. It's the energy of the cosmos lining up. There is randomness in life, and those are the things that happen, you know, in between the energy pools, I feel. But, I mean, we can go all the way back to birth and think about if this didn't happen, then this would never happen, and this wouldn't happen, you know. And Right, but it wasn't the same kind of stroke of luck getting a job at, what was the place called, the Pelican's Reef? Right, right. Right, like, yeah, a kid from Cincinnati is going to get that dishwasher job. That's normal. Right. But if I, if Andrew, I didn't, you know, this chef in Korea goes like, I've always said no, but I'm going to say yes to this person. Probably didn't even know your name yet. Yeah. You know, like that is kind of, that's kind of a big thing. It is. And I think, but these things are big. Some are bigger than others. Some, yeah. some have more meaningful, but I do really look at it like that. If I hadn't taken that first job at the Jimmy Buffett restaurant, washing dishes, maybe it was a different restaurant. Maybe it was a different restaurant. I, I hate it. 
I would have went a different path. You right. know, like I'm very appreciative of all the things I've done in life. Um, and they all have led me to this moment. But yes, some have been way more significant and value than others. Um, some have just, you know, been a springboard. Some have meant the world to me. Some have, yeah, been a springboard just to the next thing. Yeah, this, I mean, if I wouldn't have been to Korea, I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have been denied a visa to stay in Korea, I wouldn't have come to Chicago. I wouldn't have met Beverly. I wouldn't have a restaurant. I wouldn't, who knows where I would be. So just again, briefly, because I'm weak, I, I, you know, I haven't even told you how much stuff I've looked up and, you know, read about this chef, but your time in Korea, again, very influential on you and not just the food. Very influential. So I get there. I didn't know what to expect. I, I thought, okay, this is Korea, Seoul, one of the biggest cities in the world. I'm expecting some, you know, something similar to what I had in New York is going to city restaurant. Maybe it's on. I realized it was like on the outskirts. Literally, did I realize it was like two hours on the outskirts, like from the city center, you know, from the train station. When I get there, it's in the mountains. I had had to take a 45 minute cab ride from the from the closest train station to this remote restaurant on a almost dirt road up a dirt gravel driveway. I remember showing up there and walking up and I don't know how, but he's waiting there at the top of the driveway for me when I get out of the cab. Like he knew I was coming or something and he welcomed me in. I was, I was sort of like in shock. Like, wow, where am I? You know, like I didn't even know at that point that he had a place for me to stay. In fact, all the cooks lived on the property and worked and lived there. Um, so all this stuff's like falling in the place. I'm like, this is great. You know, this is, God, it's going to be way more pleasant than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be stressing, trying to find a place to live. I, I just packed up and left. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know much. I didn't speak any Korean. Um, and, but it, his hospitality for me more than made up for anything that I needed to learn. Um, it just sort of took over um, and started working. And and in his kitchen, it didn't matter what I had done before. I, I had to start over like bussing tables. Um, my time there never really made it much past like making salads. Like the equivalent of garmage in a Western yeah, but kitchen. Still, but still had to do table bussing at the same time. So it was kind of like a garmage type station. It was just, it humbled me out. I was like, all this American, like, superiority that I'm, we're taught to believe, I, I had to get through that experience too, which was kind of a struggle, you know, to, to think that, you know, and like, well, I'm an experienced chef. I've been a sous chef at a restaurant in New York and nobody cared. Didn't matter. Like, bust the tables. You know, you want to learn something at this restaurant, bust the tables and do it fast, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we should say that sounds a little harsh, but there was a gentleness about this place also, right? Like yeah, it they, was. The, you got three meals a day there and... We were very um, well taken care of. Yeah. Um, it was hard, hard work. I mean, we worked probably the longest hours I've ever worked, but we were fed extremely well. Like, I'm, I'm talking like it looked like a Thanksgiving table every meal. You know, it was just very, very generous. Um, 
And it just after the, you know, after the hard part of culture shock and getting past my own ego and things like that, I, I just really learned to love it there. And all the people, I realized that all the people were just kind of working in harmony. Of course, we're humans. They have little scuffles here and there with each other. But there's none of this like uh, puffiness about oneself. You know, it was just sort of like we're all here to do the same job. And there was no there's like no macho bullshit. Not no, not really. It yeah. was just like this is our job. This is what we're doing. And um, and we like doing this. You know, it's it's they they really took a lot of pride in what they did and. I noticed that like the tools were, they didn't have the best Japanese knives ever, but their knives were sharp. They weren't like, didn't have all the best equipment and it was old equipment. It was in the country and, but it was spotless and clean and spick and span and sanitary and um, different cleaning methods that I, I hadn't seen before. Like a lot of water in Korea. They, they love to like keep dousing the floor so there's nothing on the floor at any time. No scraps of food, lots of drains. And so that's one thing that they, they love is to keep it, just keep it like always clean. So they have hoses and buckets and they're always just washing any blood, crumbs, veg, vegetable matter, anything. There's never any of that on the floor. So a lot of people wear like rubber boots in the kitchen to work. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. And everyone was just so generous and kind and welcoming even though i felt like i was i mean i was the only white guy like in this whole area i never saw another white person unless they were coming from like germany or something like they were a guest how did that affect you it was, i mean you were just talking about coming from america right like you yeah so you it, know like it I, was you've never been a minority quote you know it was yeah. temporary right but you that had to affect you I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, being a, I was, you know, being a white man from the Midwest, United States, I was pretty ignorant before I realized my ignorance that in this moment is when I was the only person that looked like me in this area because we were out in the country. I was the, as you said to me, the, the other. And... um and I didn't experience any, any sort of like discrimination towards myself. That's not, that's not what I felt, but I felt the eyes on me. They saw. You felt conspicuous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was different and they, and everyone knew it. I mean, I'm like, I would walk, I would take walks sometimes, in, you know, on these country roads. And there was a few times I saw people almost wreck their car because they like, oh my God, there's a white person out here. Like, what are they doing out here? You know, they would like swerve their car, you know, and um, it was like, it's pretty funny. <laughs> it was funny. Right. But it was just like yeah. such a shock. I mean, we were out in right. the middle of right. nowhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like being it's like it's like a an, like the, an Asian person going to the middle of like Appalachia, Kentucky, like the chances of seeing a, a Korean person walking on the side of the road is Maybe pretty rare. Right. It's not just that they don't know you because if you were of the same, you know, if you've vaguely looked the same, you could maybe you're a visiting relative or whatever. Yeah. Right. And but you just really. Yeah. Right, you just, I just stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And and I knew that. Um, but people were very nice and accepting. But that feeling, 
I was the moment I like kind of woke up about what it's like to feel like a minority. Um, if at all I had, I, and I, I, I want to say that, right. Like I, I'll never feel what it's like to feel like a minority in America, but is the first like inkling of understanding of what people go through, like people looking at you as if you're different. And I think from that moment, I, I changed, um, and if like I could, if I could recommend anyone doing that once in their life, like it's, it's worth the experience worth, it's worth the awakening, you know, to go somewhere remote that you probably aren't going to be looked at as the cool American, you know, you're just the white guy. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing I've come to that is going to black comedy shows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. My dad told me that like, going to Richard Pryor concerts. Uh, I'm talking about like at a club that like, you know, where it's like, I don't know what the, like, there's like, like, you know, you become part of the crowd work very quickly. Right. You know, it's, it, I love it. It's very, it's very humbling. You know, yeah. it's good. I think it's good. You know, it's funny. I went to this dinner the other night, Beverly, your wife and partner spoke at a, at a thing at Kendall College. And it was about women in the hospitality business. And you were with your kids. I actually went and sat with her. And um, one other guy did show up, but right until it started, I was the only guy there. (laughs) And we sat down and I turned to Beverly. I said, hey, I'm the only dude. And the (laughs) knee-jerk response, she goes, how's it feel to be a minority? (laughs) 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 Which I personally, I don't know. I've always thought it was a good thing. That's a good experience to have. It's a good situation to put yourself in. Yeah. So he ultimately, you would have stayed. He would have kept you. Your visa ran out. You didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. You come back to the Midwest. Um, You could never work it out. But this is around the time you and Beverly meet. It is. Yeah. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to not be able to go back to Korea. So I didn't want to like overstay my visa too long and get in trouble. So I did. My brother was living here in Chicago. I didn't want to go back to New York. Well, I did actually go back to New York for a minute because all my stuff was there. And I I freaked out. I was like, I had been living in the middle of the country for the whole summer, almost four months of of like this peaceful, listening to like crickets and frogs and not much other sounds out there. Um, I get to New York and it's, it's the rat race. You know, I'm like, this is freaking me out like and I I the next day I just like I literally left my stuff still in the storage jumped on a plane to Chicago nobody's ever asked me that question it's a good one I feel really seen (laughs) it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite (laughs) ingredient is to work with you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs an independent podcast we'll be right back this was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. And we will get you right back to the rest of my conversation with Johnny Clark in just a moment. Before we do, as I mentioned at the top of the show, our promotional partners at San Pellegrino are seeking applicants or candidates for the Sam Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition. Again, I mentioned this last week. Applications are open until the end of May, and then the U.S. finals will be in New York City this coming October. I don't mention this in the conversation I'm about to share, but the competition is open for chefs who are under 
30. So if you are a chef or an aspiring chef under 30 and would like to throw your token to the ring, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, as I do mention on last week's show, and as Michelle alludes to in this conversation I'm about to share, we attended the competition a few years ago before the pandemic. I interviewed all the finalists, and there is a link to that episode uh, in the episode description for today's show, but I was really impressed by everybody there. Uh, but I'm not going to say any more about that right now. Instead, I'm just going to share this brief conversation, which explains a little bit more about this program with Michelle Vieira of Sam Pellegrino, who dropped by to discuss it with us. Here's our short conversation about that. Michelle, welcome to the show. First of all, can I just say that this wonderful, long-standing relationship that we've enjoyed with Sam Pellegrino started with a direct message exchange between you and me, I think maybe almost four years ago now? I think that's so cool. It's wild, right? <laughs> it's amazing to me. So I mentioned it on our last show. The application process is now underway for the Sam Pellegrino Young Chefs Competition. I just thought it'd be nice to have somebody from the brand come on and just briefly talk about why this is a competition you all get behind. If I just ask you that broadly, what is it that makes such a good match between you all in this competition? The competition started about five years ago, but it's really transitioned into what we're now calling uh, San Pellegrino Young Chef Academy. The global competition is still an element of it, but this new program is essentially an educational platform that is meant to attract and connect and nurture diverse culinary talent from around the globe. It's become an international community where talented and passionate chefs meet the most influential and renowned members of the gastronomic world. There's a, a mentorship component to it. There's this education component to it. So it's, it's grown, but the entry point is still the competition. We want strong candidates who are interested in developing skills and we want them to apply. And the deadline is May 31st. Right. The deadline for applications is May 31. And then the United States finalists will compete in New York City in October. And then the following year, they go on to the global finals in Milan, Italy. Uh, Michelle, something that really strikes me about this, you know, and, and I like some of these shows, people who hear about a cooking competition, it may bring to mind some of the kind of melodrama of what you see on television. In many cases, that means a lack of seriousness. One of the things that struck me about this competition is it really is a competition in the classic culinary sense in that there's no tricks, there's no rug being pulled out from under the competitors. They come, they put their best foot forward in a, in a dish that's representative of who they are and, and what they do and perhaps kind of an outlook they may have about how food can be an, an agent of change. And then they are evaluated in a very respectful way by a panel of judges. That's a great point. And I'm actually, I'm glad you highlighted that. The element that is, is given the greatest weight is the recipe and then the story, the inspiration behind the recipe. That is part of the of the application process. When the young chefs come together for the regional uh, competition in New York, as you mentioned, you joined us at the last one a couple of years ago. The competitors, there's, there's definitely an air of conviviality. I think what also 
elevates this competition is that the judges who are really mentor judges are just of the highest caliber. Folks like Alex Dupac, Dominique Crenn, Emma Bengtson, April Bloomfield, Gavin Kaysen, these are all past judges for the U.S. Then when they get to the competition in Milan, equal caliber of, of amazing folks in, in gastronomy, Grant Akches, again, Dominique Crenn was a global judge. Just a, a long list of, of folks that give their feedback on the young chef's dish and how it was executed. And it's done in such a thoughtful and you know, productive and really positive way. Right. There's no, there is no Simon Cowell on this panel. No, it's all done with love. It's a great atmosphere. Yeah. I have to say to your point about uh, the way the dishes reflect the individual chefs. I mean, last time I was there, it was some of the ones that stand out for me. I mean, Rafael Covarrubias, who won the competition, who at the time, uh, I imagine he's still there, was based in Canada, but was from Mexico. His dish was very simple. It was a duck with mole. And mole is a very personal thing, as some of our listeners may know. And I remember Mike Solomonoff from Philadelphia was one of the judges that year. And he made, when they were evaluating the dishes, he said, I feel like I know you from tasting this dish. There was a young chef, Jeremy Stevens from New Orleans, who who cooked a dish that was very much reflective of his upbringing there. Uh, Jenny Dorsey from Studio Atau in Los Angeles, who's become a bit of a rising star, did something that was very reflective of her sort of artistic bent and on and on and on. I mean, they were all like that. And like you said, it was very convivial. I imagine a lot of those people are probably still in touch. I'm actually still in touch with a few of the chefs that I did that speed round of 10 minute interviews with. So sorry to interrupt, but that's the exact point of the Academy. All of these young chefs enter the competition and they're part of the San Pellegrino family for for life, essentially through this Academy. So the Academy connects them all and gives them opportunities to connect with you know some of the judges and some of the sages that I mentioned and others it's morphed into this really great community well as I'm sure I mentioned at the top of this show when I've got around to doing the introduction I will have links to everywhere you need to go to learn more about the competition to learn more about the academy and to start your application process so any of you out there listening if you are an aspiring chef or a chef I would urge you to consider doing this. And Michelle, thank you very much for popping by the pod. I love that you finally got on the air here with us. Thanks, Andrew. It was fun. Again, my great thanks to Michelle Vieira of San Pellegrino for dropping by the pod to talk about the San Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition. Again, if you are under 30 and are a chef or an aspiring chef, I would encourage you to visit the links in our episode description and apply for this program. I really do think it's a wonderful thing and that you will be glad you did. And with that, I'm now going to get you to the rest of my conversation with Johnny Clark. When we last left off, our hero had just decided to move to Chicago. Jumped on a plane to Chicago, which was a nice medium. It's it's not as it's not as busy as New York in in that sense like you know, you know, we're we live in like we're here in this neighborhood. It's kind of a a bit away from city center and it's a little yeah, bit you're in a neighborhood called Avondale. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little bit quieter and there's, there's a little bit of space to find some peace. It's significantly different than most people. What most people who aren't from Chicago think of when they think about Chicago. Right. Like I walked yesterday to the purple pig for lunch, six miles. Wow. Yeah. But there's a moment where, which direction is that? Uh, southeast. So I'm walking southeast and then I kind of turn towards, start heading toward downtown. 
and it almost looks like you're coming to Chicago from outside Chicago. Yeah. Like you see the skyscrapers and the kind of gleaming major metropolitan, you know, area of downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. This is not that. This is, no. uh, it's residential it's slash, it's, an there's a, it's a little industry. industrial. Yeah. There's not high rises. Yeah. There's some like a lot of bars and there's like auto body shops and, right. you know, coffee bars also. And, yeah. you know, a couple of strip malls, but it's, the main thing is there's no height to it. Right. And it's, and it's older. Like, it, mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's not the modern downtown Chicago. Yeah. When people think about like Frank Sinatra singing like State Street, that great street, yeah. that's not this. I think most of Chicago was built from 1900 to 1920. And I think all the buildings in this area were built like within five years. So these are more than a hundred year old buildings we're all in. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit, it has a little bit of older feel. It took some time for me to get used to, honestly, like coming from New York and, and then Korea as well. Tell you the truth, I was a little like, this is very different for me of all the different places I lived. Um, and I was like, I, I didn't love it at first and thought about moving somewhere else. I, I really wanted to go back to Korea. And that was during this time when I, when I first got here. As you mentioned, we it didn't work out just like any other country. Like if you're applying for a visa that that the, uh, a citizen of that country can can take instead of a, a, a foreign national, then you're not going to get a visa. Chances are, right? They didn't have a cook shortage. They didn't have a cook shortage. So there was you weren't going to get a visa to be yeah. a cook. If right? it was an American restaurant serving hamburgers, then I, I probably would have. But this was a Korean restaurant, considered a Korean restaurant, even though it was like he didn't like to phrase it like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I couldn't get the visa. So then I began looking for, I don't know, I realized I wasn't going back. He actually, they, his assistant told me because his assistant spoke English, called me and told me that I, the visa wasn't going to be possible. But we should always stay in touch and keep, you know, maybe something in the future can work out. So I just came to the conclusion I wasn't going back. I started looking for people in Chicago to share that experience with. Like I'm, I'm longing to go back to this place that where I'd never been treated so well in a kitchen environment. Like in, at this point, the kitchen is my identity. You know, it's like, it is who I am. I'm a chef. I'm going to be a chef. I'll always be a chef. And it's my, it is my identity as a, as a person. And so I can't find a Korean restaurant here. That's not the mom and pop place. Like there's no way I'm going to get job at Chosun Oak up the street. Like it's not going to, not going to happen. It's like a family. Yeah. Business most of these or, places are probably family run. And yeah. And, and it's not, that's not going to take me to a career and a career path. Whereas like working at Sandong in Korea would have, I was looking for, couldn't find anybody, couldn't find a Korean restaurant that was like on, on like a modern, you know, leaning front. But I did come across Beverly who had also worked in Korea. I saw where she was working at the time, which was a Chinese uh, inspired restaurant. I think she had the same, same thing. She couldn't find, there was no Korean restaurants to work for a chef of her. Leanings. Leanings. Yeah. yeah. Like she's trying, she's trying to be a professional chef, like working at a mom and pop kind of place is not going to get her a livable wage one day, you know, as a chef. So, um, there wasn't that kind of Korean restaurant here at the time, but I saw that she was Korean American and I saw that she had also spent some time in Korea on this bio that was in a magazine. So I ended up sending her a email saying, I'd love to like meet up. I sent her my resume, just hope, hopingly she had heard of where I'd worked and she, like 
<clears throat> sure enough, she remembered the same article in the same magazine. When she saw that, she was very intrigued. So we ended up meeting up and um, it was, and that's sort of like history was made, you know, like we, here for, for us, we hit it off and had a child six months later, um, got married. Now we have three kids, two restaurants. We well, didn't have a child six months later. We did. No, I mean, no, 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 not a child. We got, we were pregnant six months later. Excuse me. <laughs> he was not premature. Um, We'd have to revisit that whole destiny conversation. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, actually he was, he was very overdue. Okay. Um, no. So, but we found out we were going to have a child. Six yeah, months yeah, later. yeah. Excuse okay. me. But we were married and knew we were having a child six months later. Uh huh. Amazing. Um, just because of, uh, you know, Korean tradition, her parents believe that I should be, we should be married if we're going to have a child. Or even live together. I remember when together. she did the show yeah. last year, she said, you know, she, I remember her saying it, you know, that in her parents' mind, you guys were living in sin. Yeah. Yeah. She, that was her exact words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, but, um, I, you know. There was some hard times, but, you know, her and her parents, I, I love her parents. They're, they're just great. Um, I, we wouldn't be here without them. So. Well, they helped you guys get. Yeah, they did. They, the they were, a, that's, they were the reason why we were able to open parachute. They co-signed their, their house over for us, took a risk on us to get this bank loan. Um, without that, let's put it this way. I knew I wasn't going to fail when I took that. When I took that, um, took that weight on my shoulders, like there's no way I'm going to lose my in-laws home over. Can you imagine like if you did every visit for the no, rest of your life? It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. It's <laughs> the worst. Um, I say that generically. I haven't yeah. met Beverly's parents, but I mean, you, come on, that would be the, you, know, you would just be like. I would go down in a ball of flames before would, that would happen. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Um, okay. So. We don't need to dwell in it, but just to give people a sense, you guys at one point end up both not having restaurant jobs. You both were working for Whole Foods. And I don't mean on the corporate advisory level. Like, I think you said to me, like, putting macaroni in the steam table at, like, the lunch bar. Yeah, thing exactly. they have. Yeah. Macaroni and cheese. And, and you would... So like you weren't, it wasn't like corporate, I mean, it was, these were just, you were just a shift worker there. I mean, I shouldn't say just, there's, there's perfectly fine jobs, but, and, and when you had your first kid, you guys would, um, this is correct, right? You would actually, you would finish your shift and then Beverly would be on the way walking to her job. The other way around. The she, other way she around. She worked the mornings and then we would pass off the baby halfway home because our she'd go home and you'd go to work. We would meet on the same path halfway and because the, it was like by the time like I'd have to walk, she'd have to start walking in order to it's like we couldn't actually meet there. It was just like pass the baby like a football, hand off and give each other a kiss and off to off to work. So I think this is a good thing. I mean, there's listen, uh, this is a tough business you're in. People who listen to the show are largely in the industry. When you think back to that moment. And, you know, look where you guys are now. I mean, I know it's still hard, but you, you know, you own these two buildings you've, or these two complexes almost. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, you're, 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 the, you're the recipients of accolades. You have some entertainment prospects in your lives. Um, you know, as, as things go in a COVID era, doing pretty good. Um, what was the turning point? What do you see as the turning point? Like, what was the, the, uh, the junction between that kind of low point and feeling like probably it was all getting away from you? Uh, and getting and getting it back. Um, yeah, I mean, like that that Whole Foods experience that was just that was purely because we couldn't both do it. I mean, we couldn't both work in a restaurant. It was it was too hard. I mean, the stress alone was enough to, you know, be hard for us as first time parents. So, but I think what what really hit me was being a stay at home parent because I think. Out of all the things, even at Whole Foods, I still kept hope that I would one day, it's not going to be forever. I'm going to keep working once the baby gets a little older, I'll be able to go back to work. But once I think what hit me was being a stay-at-home dad and um, and I realized I wouldn't wish that upon anyone that actually has dreams. And it's completely admirable to be a stay-at-home parent. It is a hard job, but if that wasn't your vision for yourself and you find yourself there, I don't wish that upon anyone because your dreams are squashed. You know, like I always dreamed of, you know, having a family, but also being able to pursue my personal goals and admirations um, and your aspiration, not admirations, what am I saying? Aspirations. Um, and I found myself in like a deep, dark depression where I felt like I wasn't being good at anything. I wasn't being a good husband, a good father, because my mind was always drifting away from my kid. Um, I wasn't I wasn't contributing to the household financially. Um, in fact, I was probably spending money just to like to satisfy my depression. Like I need to have hobbies. I need to, I thought I was going to make knives at one point. You know, I took a knife making class, which required me to pay for this class and pay for a babysitter. And we didn't really have the money for that, but I felt like I was stir crazy. Um, so just all of it just felt so, I'd never, I'd never felt so bad about myself. Um, spir spiraling into a deep depression. Um, and it was causing a lot of problems at home until I finally went back to see a therapist again and got the right medications and um, things started to pick up a little. I start, started to see once I feel like I had some with the help of cognitive therapy and some medication, I kind of pulled myself out of that depression a little bit and um, was able to slowly felt like I was we were back to chipping away at this goal of opening a restaurant together. Mm -hmm. And I could see a pinhole of light at the end of the tunnel again, you know, as opposed to just feeling swallowed up. Yeah, I, it was a dark, dark time for me, mm -hmm. dark place to feel like you're not um, going to achieve your dreams is one thing. But with that, coupled with feeling like I'm not raising my child properly. Like I'm not being a good father, being this depressed, angry, 
person all the time. Like that just put me in a really deep, dark place. I mean, you and I have talked about this. I struggle with some very similar stuff. I do think it is amazing when you are able to make that transition from feeling like things are insurmountable, like you don't know where to start addressing it, mm -hmm. uh, hopeless. Yeah. To all of it, when you said that pinpoint, to all of a sudden going, okay, here's maybe the beginnings of an outline of maybe a possible plan or a series of steps. And then you can think about, okay, this is the first thing I need to do. Right. right? Like, but that's a huge, that's a huge transition to make. It's so crazy. I think you probably do too. I mean, I still, I'll still have days where I feel like that, where I can't get anything done. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do first. Uh, it feels overwhelming. And then I'll get a good night of sleep and like, you know, go for a hike. And then like two days later, I'll wake up and I'll be like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, make a list and just start knocking stuff down. Like why was Monday one way and Wednesday the other? I, I don't know to this day. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, does that it's, resonate? Yeah, I mean, every day becomes this, it just feels like you've been put inside of a, I don't know, it's like kind of looking through a kaleidoscope or something. You know, it's just like, the, it, you just you see all this jumbled mess and it just feels like, what's going on? Like, I, I don't know who I am, where I am, what am I doing? What's What's my purpose? Like, I have no purpose is what it felt like. It just felt like a, a waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've ever been there as a person feeling like a a burden, like that's when you know that you've hit like pretty much rock bottom when you feel like, you know, and, and I think it's like even suicidal. I mean, I, I, I know that's it's a pretty deep thing to talk about, but it's um, I've been there. Um, it's when you don't feel like you have a purpose and you're actually a burden to your family that's that's just a really terrible place and I, I thank god that beverly you know just she insisted that i go see someone um she probably saved my life mm -hmm. um i've never been quite that lost close yeah but in, it was the same i got you know uh, my wife put her foot down one day yeah because i was it was it was going to be yeah. that or it was going to be I mean, thank God for our wives. Yeah, like they uh, just. Yeah, I mean, 100%. You know, yeah. I've, I look back at how I. I mean, you talk about like feeling like you're a burden. Like, if you're feeling that way, you, you may be, but you don't need to be. Exactly. But you yeah. probably are. I mean, I for sure was. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't getting my work done, so I wasn't earning enough, you yeah. know? And I don't know. You know, I, a lot of people in the industry do struggle with this stuff, and I don't want to get. Uh, I feel like there is a lot of kind of. Uh, hollow talk around these issues lately, but I do, anyone out, anyone who's listening, I, who does suffer from this stuff, I do think, and I, please tell, I, I'm sure you're going to say you agree with this, but, you know, once you do start addressing it, once you do find like that right therapist, if you do need medication, I mean, I'm, I was off it for a few years, but I, I, about a year ago, I went back on Zoloft, you know, and I still, I still take it every day. Once you get that, some of those pieces worked out, it will, it does, it will get better, mm -hmm. you know? And I think not, I've tried to teach my kids this as a parent, like keeping something in your head, just ricocheting around and, and snowballing and 
you know, whatever other metaphors you want to use is the worst. I think it's the worst. Yeah. I think once you st get it out, openly talk about the fact that you're having a hard time, even just that, saying that to somebody, yeah. I think is massive. Definitely. Massive. That is, that's the step that you have to take. I mean, I, and things progress, things change. Um, you know, I like compared to what I like sort of medication that I was on then was actually like at this point, I'm like on a cocktail of things, you know, but it's, I am, I feel stable mentally. I feel per, like, I feel positive about my life. I feel um, like I'm productive, you know, and some, some, I mean, we all have days where it's like, oh, I'm just down in the dumps today and that's okay. But um, overall, I've, the weather or the climate is better than the weather. That makes sense. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay, so let's, um, Parachute, we've talked about on the show before. A mm -hmm. little less so wherewithal. First of all, I, I have a, um, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. I feel like, let's say the two restaurants are your guys' kids. I feel like where, uh, Parachute looks a little more like Beverly <laughs> and wherewithal looks a little more like you. Um, and I don't mean cosmetically. I'm just using that as yeah. an analogy. What I mean by that is, uh, and I think this maybe leads to the whole, you know, revelation that you had over in Paris. A parachute is, you know, in its stated description, Korean is part of the, the makeup. Um, I know that finds its way a little bit into wherewithal, but it's not as much, I think, as the, of the definition. Yeah. Um, wherewithal, this to me is very you. The menu changes weekly. Mm -hmm. That to me is a Johnny thing. You yeah. know, like you, we didn't really get into it, but like, you know, when you first spoke to me ever about, you know, when you finally, let, when, you know, when you left New York or when you did this or when you mm -hmm. did that, that you just do tend to get tired of things. Um, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, so I think about the fact that the menu here changes every week is kind of a, that's like a you thing. Yeah. I don't think Beverly has anything against it, but I don't know that that would have been her default setting, right? For a restaurant. Right. Um, and it was largely shaped by this time you spent in Paris. Mm -hmm. So first of all, am I correct in putting it that way? Yeah, you're, I mean, for the most part, yes. Um, I say parachute, when, like when we opened Parachute, the menu was changing daily too. And I was, a, it was a mad, it was a madman. Um, I'm sure I made a lot of cooks run for the hills, you know, like I was a madman, just, it was all this pent up creativity that it just exploded when we opened. And I think, I mean, I had years of built up, uh, creativity that I've just was literally nowhere to go. Yeah. Nowhere yeah. to go. And so I like the first couple years, it was just crazy. And then I finally got to a point like, okay, I kind of drained that tank you know like i i'm still creative but i'm okay with like things being the same for a couple weeks you know and then it became i'm okay with it being the same for a couple months let's get better at it um and and it, and it helped the business overall like things people stay longer they didn't get burned out as fast um but you know i still sort of longed for that open creativity um which was still inspired by my chef in Korea, the Nim Jiho, because his his vision was to not ha he didn't want to be labeled as a Korean restaurant. He wanted to be just a chef, a global chef, and that's sort of what coupled with my stage at Le Chateaubriand in Paris, which was the first time, the first time that 
I had ever experienced a European style kitchen where people were having fun and taking their craft and their art very seriously, but not taking themselves so seriously. They were listening to music, shirts were unbuttoned, t-shirts were worn. Sometimes a chef jacket was worn, sometimes not. It was just sometimes you're wearing sneakers, sometimes you're wearing black shoes. It didn't matter. It was just what mattered was what ended up in front of the guest and what was in your glass and what was on your plate. And if that, if the end result was what you were looking for, then everything was great. Um, that's not to say that like Inaki wasn't like a very passionate about getting the right thing. Cause he, he would, he's the chef. He, yeah. He's yeah, the, one yeah. of the two partners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he would, he'd definitely ride you if it, if it wasn't like what we were looking for, but the freedom just to be yourself and be a human being and ha let your own personality come out was very liberating to know that it's one thing in, in Korea to have this experience, but then to know that, okay, also in, in Western culture, this can happen too, because in Korea, like, Things are things were very different from like American society. Just just the thought process. Like if I initially thought to go right, actually the answer was left. You know, it just it, I don't know how to quite say that, but there's a there's a um, just a history of like think philosophy um, amongst people. But th this time being in like a European country, like saying, okay, this is a lot like the way I grew up. We might speak a different language, but similar cultural mm -hmm. backgrounds. And this felt like it did, it felt liberating to know that this can be done, you know? And, and so um, a lot of that showed in, in Parachute, but with Wherewithal, like I always, want, I just didn't feel like at the time we could do a prefix menu. It didn't feel like the right thing to do in Chicago at the time, but you know, six years later, when we decided we were going to open Wherewithal, it, it felt like a good, good time. It was still, still felt risky, but it felt like we could do this, you know. But you also did a tasting menu that's not like, it's not like a $300 tasting menu. No, it's, it's, um, it's supposed to be like egalitarian. It's supposed to be for most people. Um, it's not for everybody. Not everybody can afford that, but. Just for the record, can I just tell you, I wrote a sentence the other day and it was wherewithal is in its way egalitarian. <laughs> so I didn't steal your word. Um, <laughs> that's funny that you yeah, just said that though. Because yes, um, that's how it strikes me. Yeah, it's it's not it's supposed to be. I mean, if you want to walk in here in a in your tank top and flip flops, we're not going to turn you away. It's It doesn't matter. You know, it's just, you don't need to feel out of place. If mm -hmm. it's hot outside and you come in like that, then. So be it, you know, but we're going to still serve you the best quality food that we can at this price point. And that that free, the freeness that of being able to change the menu every week, we don't do it because we have to. We do it because we want to. It's fun, you know, and, and the food does not have to be perfect. I think that's what I think that's one thing that's hard for people to understand is like, I think at this price point, you don't expect three Michelin. You shouldn't expect three Michelin quality, maybe one, but. We strive is 
we're always going to strive for the best we can possibly produce, but it's not perfect. It's, this is like coming to our house for dinner. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you mean when you say it's not perfect. I mean, I've, I've gone through, I mean, granted, I'm writing a book about you guys. Everyone knows I'm sitting there yeah. like, but I mean, there is a lot, I've, I've said this to you, to me, there's a lack, uh, I don't mean a lack, there's a, um, an absence of uh, ego in the food. You know, you guys are, I mean, this is very normal for a restaurant that changes its menu weekly. There's not a lot of show-offy right. plating and knife work. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of exactitude in the cooking, but you're not trying to have people flip out when they just see the plate, you know, like mm. not every, you know, like when the fish course comes out, not all the plates are going to look absolutely identical. You know, the cut, just the cuts <clears throat> might right. be a little bit, they'll be the, probably way the same, but they're probably, they might look a little different. They might look the same. Yeah. But party of six, probably at least one's going to look a little different, you know, doesn't affect the eating. Mm-mm. Right. This is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Like you're I mean, not- it's, uh, let me, I just trying to say these aren't dishes that we spent months research and developing. Yeah. These, all the dishes are thought up by looking at the produce list of what's available, when we can get it. And every dish is thought of, is thought of from the perspective of looking at a farmer's list and saying, oh, they have, they have ruby turnips or whatever this week. Let's, do a dish of turnips. Um, oh, look, it's razor clam season. Let's, it's just, that's how, that's how it starts. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's, this, these aren't going to be where we've researched and developed this dish for two months and bring it to your table. And we pull the cloche off and the smoke, yeah, yeah. you know, bellows out. And um, it's, that's not what we're doing. It's more on the lines of like, I look at it like Chez Panisse, mm-hmm. you know, the Chez Panisse is just this like, it's just fresh, good cooking. Yeah. I mean, the thing that you guys don't obsess over is what I've come to call knife work and pyrotechnics. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like those two things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's no I trick. guess you could add tweezers to that. But I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, 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 you know, straightforward, honest food. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like to think of it as like, as I said earlier in the, in the show, the, it's like an extension of our house. Like yeah. you wouldn't, if you came to someone's house, you're paying for it. But if you came to someone's house, you're not going to be like, how long did you research this dish? Because it's not quite, doesn't like my plate doesn't look like her plate. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, there is those little differences here and there. And that's because we're just trying to give you the best we can at this price point, And we're not trying to work our employees to death. And we're mm-hmm. not, we're trying to, lead a sustainable lifestyle here. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to have a sustainable restaurant. Well, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. It has. Were you glad? Okay. I meant to ask you at the beginning if you were dreading sitting down and doing it. So <laughs> hey, were you? Not at all. You were okay with it. I was okay with it. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm getting, I'm getting better at this. Okay. And, um, yeah, this is great. It's like therapy for me. Just Good. Get, it, get it all well, out. That's the highest compliment a guest can uh, <laughs> can pay. So I'm definitely going to leave it right there. All right, Johnny, thank you very much for coming Thanks, on. Thanks, Andrew.
And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Johnny Clark for coming on the pod and for being so open. My thanks to Michelle Vieira of San Pellegrino for coming by to talk about the San Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, we ask that you do that by posting about us on social media. Our handle on Instagram is at Chef Podcast. That is at Chef Podcast. Or you could tell a friend or friends about the show. Or you can leave us a rating and especially a review at Apple Podcasts, which really does help new listeners discover us. Our thanks as always to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Again, we'd love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>